ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we hear the second half of Wesley J. Smith's conversation with mathematician and Discovery Institute senior fellow David Berlinski, talking about human exceptionalism, serious questions about the sensibility of Darwinism, and much more in a discussion that first appeared on Wesley J. Smith's podcast titled Humanize. And his will be the first voice that you hear as we begin. You've described yourself as a secular Jew, um, but at the same time you've, you've decried atheism as using science to gain a legitimacy it does not deserve. Are you saying that we should all be agnostic? You mean follow my lead? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm encouraging. I'm encouraging that. Sure. Um, look, I have, I have absolutely no problem with the religious experience. And I know and I have known many people deeply moved by their religious experience. I have nothing to say about that. I do find myself deeply suspicious about anyone who affirms as a matter of belief that, for example, there is no God. He includes that in his belief, because so long as he includes that in his belief, it's reasonable to ask why. Every time you say, I believe such and such, it's perfectly reasonable to say, why do you believe that? Just as if someone claims to know something, it's reasonable to say, how do you know that? How and why are two questions appropriate to our cognitive attitudes? Uh, inevitably, though, when you discuss matters with an atheist, and I have from time to time had a public debate uh, with Christopher Hitchens, what they mean is not, I believe that God does not exist. What they mean is, a belief in God's existence or inexistence is not among my beliefs. I back off from that. Just as I don't have a particular belief with respect to the first person who managed to scale Annapurna in winter. I don't have a belief that he did. I don't have a belief that he didn't. I just don't include that among my beliefs. Those are quite different epistemic attitudes. I believe that God does not exist, makes a claim. I'm entitled to say, well, why? And, and if I say I believe God does exist, you, you same would... Thing. Same but thing. If I don't believe God exists, it's not among my beliefs, well... That's just neutral as far as I can see. That's an agnostic position. I have nothing to say to that because it's probably what most of us who are not living a religious life, as I'm not. I wouldn't be sitting here in Paris if I were. Um, most of us who are not living a religious life have the attitude that God exists, God does not exist. Those are propositions which I could believe or disbelieve, but I don't happen to include them in my belief set. And yet, uh, you used to, when Notre Dame was open, uh, go there regularly to light a candle for a deceased friend. Yep. So, <laughs> that was a religious practice. I'm large. I, can, I comprise multitudes. What can I say? <laughs> my friend was the mathematician Marco Schutzenberger, and uh, at his death, he said he wants to come back as a gargoyle. <laughs> oh, I love those gargoyles. Yeah, I'm Notre Dame. And, uh, I mean, the church is closed now, but whenever I pass, you know, I, I live right around the corner, I would go in, and you can buy a little candle, and just put it on some sort of oil or something. Um, I can't say 
I believe Marco was watching or anything like that, but it might, made me feel good. And like everybody else, I do a lot of things because it makes me feel good. It connect. It kept you at least connected with your dead friend. Yeah, it did. And, and, and that's fun. a really human thing to do. When Notre Dame opens again, I'll do it again. I would say, uh, except you're Jewish, go, when you walk by, uh, give your, cross yourself, you know? <laughs> That's carrying matters a little yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I suspect you're a bit of an iconoclast, and I wonder if you were living in a different era, say the Middle Ages, whether you would be similarly, similarly critical of religious analysis of reality. Tough to say. You know, the figure I admire most in the 11th, early 12th century, is Abelard. Um, Abelard did not quite have the complete Aristotelian canon at its fingertips. It hadn't been translated yet. A hundred years later, Thomas Aquinas would have the whole thing. But he had a, a certain portion of Aristotelian logic, and he was enormously gifted, a natural-born logician. And... Uh, he, he, he loved to go uh, and hear other people lecture, and inevitably he found them irritating and pompous, and he made a specialty of asking devastating questions from the lecture hall, questions that he knew the lecturers, like William of Champeau, for example, was one of them. Um, Ronsard was another one. They just simply could, uh, not Ronsard, uh, Rosselin was another one, Ronsard's French poet. He couldn't answer, uh, and in fact... The most um, notable aspect of Abelard's life took place right outside my window. And he was walking down the street, his head full of liturgical arguments. He wrote a big book called Sick and No, Yes and No, disputing, disputing, challenging church dogma, and offering variants of church dogma at the same time, making a spectacle of himself. And then he met Eloise, a beautiful young girl, 16, walking down the street. They carried on torrid affair in the building right around the corner from me, still a big plaque memorializing their affair. And it all came to grief. It all came to grief. Uh, both their lives were ruined. Eloise re retired to a convent, spent 40 years in a convent. And um, Abelard fell into dispute with St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and he died miserable, broken, completely broken. Um, so I, I don't know whether the life of an iconoclast in the Middle Ages really has all that much to commend it. But I would add one thing. It could get even, you burned at the stake. <laughs> what Abelard and Eloise suffered was worse. Yeah. Lifelong. It's called chagrin d'amour, the sadness of love. Because they parted when they were only 22 or 23, and they parted for life. And it, even at the end of her life, Eloise said, even if I'm damned to hell, nothing will compel me to give up the love I had for Avalon. And uh, she, died, she died a broken woman. He died a broken man. Uh, and that's very human, too, in the sense of broken heart is a human condition. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're a, you're a pretty harsh critic of Darwinism. and we'll Talk a little bit about that. Let's define the term. A lot of people think Darwinism is just natural selection, but it isn't. How do you define Darwinism? Well, Darwinism really is uh, the thesis when it comes to biological change, what a lucky break occurred. Because it is random all the way down. Mutations, kind of the instrument for, for Darwinian evolution, are random, so the theory holds. 
And uh, although natural selection by definition is not random, it favors those with advantageous variations. The fact is the environments change randomly. So what's advantageous to the elephant in one environment, say the veld in, in Africa, would be disadvantageous to another environment if an elephant were forced to live in a high-rise in Manhattan. <laughs> that trunk would certainly not fit in the elevator. Um, so we have randomness all the way down, and the product of two random variables is again a random variable. And uh, just from an intuitive point of view, and Darwinism is an intuitive point of view, it's not a well-developed theory, as many outstanding theoretical biologists acknowledge, just from an intuitive point of view, it doesn't seem adequate to the facts. Uh, how can a random, and this is a question that lots of people have been asking, how can a purely random process generate the incredible, the marvelous, sophisticated complexity of organic life? It's a good question. It hasn't been answered. Yeah, and and the people who ask it, uh, if they identify as as a certain, um, for example, proponents of intelligent design, are are attacked in a way that I think is unscientific. Because if you're really looking for what is, you should welcome heterodox theories, not try to challenge them or suppress them. But Wesley, we have to be. To a certain extent, tolerant, the people who are attacking intelligent design are, are like guests at a banquet uh, who announce they're on a severe diet, won't touch a thing, but may be seen gobbling from the table five minutes later. And all the ideas have entered into, into uh, biological discourse. For example, the idea of irreducible complexity, which is Mike Behe's idea. But certain structures are by definition inaccessible to a Darwinian mechanism because all the parts have to fit together and if one is taken away, uh, the structure will collapse. So no gradual or continuous process is adequate to the construction of the whole. That's a very powerful idea. And Mike Behe is one of the most interesting theoretical bi biologists of the last century. And biologists, all of them who are writing about this subject, understand this is a real challenge. They're just unwilling to give credit where credit is due, but again. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, probably for the same reason I wouldn't give credit where credit is due, a desire to hog the glory. And it has to be said, a fear of where those arguments could lead. And, and that's pretty clear. That the That's, I think, the key there, the fear of where it will lead. I think there's a certain hubris to this. Now, this is not the issues that I engage. I don't engage the intelligent design issue. I engage human exceptionalism, which we'll get to. Uh, but I think that uh, if intelligent design is true, that means materialism is false. And there's a certain uh, power for pe believers in materialism, that is that they are the sh captain of their own ship. And if uh, if if there's... I said, I think that's true, Wesley, but I think the more important point is everyone at the top of the scientific pyramid, the really powerful intellects, uh, almost unconsciously are prepared to say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. If it ain't coming from my mouth, it's not true. What they're apprehensive about, again, it's perfectly understandable, is that science itself as a mode of inquiry is going to make that kind of asseveration untenable. Yeah. There are other gods beside you. You don't have the last word. 
And those other gods are not simply gods of chance. They have a much more personal and direct uh, and more compelling influence on human life. That is something that I think uh, almost every scientist instinctively rejects. I, I'm not trying to label you, but you, you approach life from a secular perspective, a, a, a analytical perspective, and yet you are a believer or you accept the intelligent design hypothesis. Steve Meyer believes that that intelligent designer is God, not necessarily the Christian God. I, I interviewed him uh, a bit ago. Not necessarily the Christian God. He said you can't prove that, but he believes that the the um, evidence does suggest God as as we would understand God. That is a metaphysical uh, driver and creator of all that is. Is that a, a fair description? I think it is fair, and I think Steve Meyer deserves enormous credit for having the courage to go out and make the case explicitly. And it's perfectly clear to me why the scientific community doesn't want to follow his lead. And why they've tried to actually suppress this view and, and call it creationism, which they consider a denigration. But it's, a, it's false because the scientific method requires heterodox challenges. And the Darwinian uh, uh, community seems to be saying, we don't want no challenges. Well, Wesley, look, um, we're among friends. Is there anything wrong with creationism as a possibility? No, in the in the sense that uh, um, I don't think you can prove scientifically when when they say creationism, I think they're referring to the Adam and Eve story, um, which of course cannot be demonstrated scientifically. I think they're trying to say that it's a myth as opposed to what you're saying is that it's the actually the uh, best explanation we can come up with at this time. I think the inference to the best explanation, although it's never been clarified logically to my satisfaction, is in use all the time. And then when, when Steve Meyer is arguing, he's arguing with respect to an inference to the best explanation. And his conclusion, if you look at the facts of astrophysics, if you look at the facts of molecular biology, if you look at lots of different facts, they're all pointing like a series of converging arrows to one hypothesis. And it's perfectly reasonable. The question whether I accept it is a quite different question. From your perspective, I would assume the um, argument that actually provides the best explanation as we can understand it at this time is the one that we should be pursuing or that we should accept. Yeah, I guess so. Look, I, I don't have a vested interest in, in explaining things. I, I'm really a second story man, you know. <laughs> On the first story, they're busy explaining things. On the second story, they're kind of looking down and criticizing. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not there on the second story. You can look down and say, oh, that you did that wrong. You did that right. You did that wrong. But I don't have to do those things. Yeah. I'm one of those guys, too. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd like this interview. You know, it's like that, the constant um, abjuration. Uh, you're supposed to punch up instead of punching down. Well, I don't see any reason to do that. I vastly prefer punching down because if you punch up, somebody might punch back. <laughs> I, I find that intensely disagreeable. I don't like criticism at all. <laughs> but, but the pointed issue is 
not to ask too much of a community, but too much, what they cannot spontaneously provide. Instead, nibble at the edges until the plausibility of a certain position becomes evident. And I think that's exactly what Steve Meyer has done. I think it's exactly what the guys at the Discovery Institute have done in a very sophisticated way, I think. Um, keep asking, why are we ruling out of court certain kinds of inferences that we would otherwise be prepared to make? Inferences to some sort of controlling intellectual force responsible for the complexity we see. That's not a scientific theory. It's not a scientific theory by any means. If you compare it with general relativity, you see enormous difference. We don't have controlling equations. We don't have fundamental insights into the structure of what might be involved if an intelligence is controlling the generation of complexity. That's all part of the, the religious metaphysical tradition. It's, it's not bad because of that. It's none the worse for wear, but it shouldn't confuse that with a, a true scientific theory. And there, there are different ways for human beings to know things, right? I mean, there's a noetic way of knowing things. There's a scientific way of knowing things. Metaphysical, uh, religious uh, experiences, as you mentioned before, Oh, for sure. A metaphysics is a metaphysics. Uh, I, I think that that's probably true. The deepest questions are metaphysical. But uh, again, to, to insist that there are um, different ways of knowing, yes, of course that's true. Of course there are different ways of knowing. What I know from experience is quite different from what I can generate from theory. But, but I think there's, there's also a certain amount of wisdom in, in respecting the kind of institutional structures in which we find ourselves, not asking institutions to do more than they're capable of doing. Yeah. I, I would be flabbergasted if the community of theoretical physics were to stop on a dime and say, hey, we never thought of that. That is the hypothesis that there's a controlling, intellectual, all-powerful agency behind the world. Of course, the great physicists have all thought of that. But for professional, personal, intellectual, psychological reasons, they simply, as an institution, are unwilling to commit themselves to that. Also, the uh, philosophy of science, which says everything has to have a naturalistic explanation, I think sometimes makes it so that uh, what might be actually true is missed. Well, you know, when you come, you come across declarations, everything must have a naturalistic explanation. Uh, there's a self-referential fallacy because what you've just said obviously doesn't have a naturalistic explanation. It's up for grabs. So it's, it's a little like um, the verifiability principle of the 1930s and the 1940s. It's a little like Christopher Hitchens' declaration which cannot be supported with evidence, can be rejected without evidence. That proposition itself is neither supported by evidence and it's certainly easy to reject it. Um, that's a great, uh, a great challenge for almost all of 20th, thought, 20th century thought to avoid self-referential fallacies. For example, beyond mathematics and the sciences, nothing is meaningful. It's the verifiability principle immediately falls victim to the self-referential fallacy. It itself is neither mathematics nor mathematical nor scientific. But that, that is, um, it, it runs like a, an undiagnosed, unseen scar throughout 20th century philosophical thought. Wow, that's a, a terribly powerful argument. Very evocative way to put that. Let me, let me give you another quote you've written. Um, you said that the Holocaust was a crime against humanity because it was a crime against human nature. 
What did you mean by that? That's a that's a really interesting thought. I don't think we are have yet reached the historical perspective where we can come to understand the Holocaust. In, in fact, almost everything about it is still mysterious. But I think at Nuremberg, the justices very valiantly tried to uh, to put together some part of wisdom to account for the fact that these events took place between 1939 and 1945. And the charge, the gravamen of the charge, crime against humanity really means there is something intrinsic. By intrinsic, I mean necessary to human nature that finds the Holocaust repugnant, morally repugnant, not simply as a crime, but as an idea. And I think that is true. I think the Holocaust is repugnant because it outrages something necessary in human nature. Cannot be changed, that sense of repugnance. I, I wonder about that, because you think about, uh, you know, let's say, biblical stories uh, where entire civilizations were wiped out and, and was not deemed repugnant. It was deemed doing the work of God. Yeah, I mean, the Bible is full of horrors. Uh, there's no question about that, but there's something, and this goes back to the remark uh, I intended just a few minutes ago, something unfathomable and inscrutable about the Holocaust that goes quite beyond biblical atrocities. When you actually actually look at uh, the Holocaust, it's crystal clear that what they had planned for the Jews was the first step. The second step was not killing all the Jews in Europe, it's killing all the Jews in the face of the earth. But the Jews were just the first step in a program of nihilistic recklessness, in which one after the other, inferior peoples would either be reduced to slavery or eliminated from the face of the earth. They had exactly that plan for the Russians, for example. One reason the Russians fought them so furiously. Uh, in the end, it is clear and there's some very interesting commentators who survived the Holocaust in concentration camps. I would commend Eugen Kagan, especially. He wrote a book called The SS State, K-A-G-A-N, I think is the spelling of his second name, where he said, look, in the end, what they envisaged was a society of the SS and no one else. And even if they could have achieved that, they would have been at the beginning of a process of devouring themselves. Yeah, you would have ended up with one person. <laughs> uh, it was all consuming. Yeah. The desire to kill. And, and that's I, what outrageous human nature. I, I think you I think you've hit your finger on something I'd never considered before, because the Holocaust does seem uniquely evil, even beyond uh the evil of American slavery, even beyond the evil that Stalin invoked, even though Stalin killed more people. I agree with you, Wesley. I mean, Stalin was obviously a, a monster in his own right. But as everyone who's written about the Holocaust has admitted, there was something unfathomable about the ambition behind the, the Holocaust. It was put to an end by the Red Army. That, that, that much we can say. But the system of desires behind it was an outrage to human nature, perhaps for the simple reason it was an outrage to life itself. 
Yeah, I think it was anti-life itself. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, people often say, uh, well, if you could go back and kill baby Hitler, would you? And my answer is always no, I would never go kill baby Hitler, but I would urge that art uh, school to admit him so that he would... Right away, oh man, would I write a letter of recommendation? Yeah, that could have made the difference in the world. I mean, uh, I think that was the for some reason, for some, that was a key point in human history when that art institute rejected his application. And, and that, again, is it, it's just baffling that history should work in that way. It's like looking at the history of the, the First World War and not noticing the accumulation of small errors that led to this enormous explosion. Yes, which it, we're still suffering the consequences of. So it hasn't ended. The 20th century hasn't come to an end. Uh, we're we're beginning to run out of time, and I haven't even gotten to at least a third of what I wanted to talk to you about, which is uh, what I expected. Uh, I, I want to um, ask you about why there are so many subversive attacks on human exceptionalism. And, and the two that I'm thinking about most acutely, I mean, you've written against transhumanism, which I think is an issue, but I find even more disturbing the animal rights movement and the nature rights movement. Are you familiar with the nature rights movement? I have to confess I'm not. Ah, nature rights um, is a, a movement, a new uh, radical environmental movement that says we cannot just protect nature by having proper laws and, you know, um, codes required and and so forth, but that nature itself should have the right to exist and flourish in evolution, and that every human being who believes that nature's, quote, rights are being violated has a right to bring a lawsuit to protect those rights. It basically creates nature on an equivalent plane as human beings. At least four rivers have already been declared uh, rights-bearing uh, quasi-persons. That, that can actually have rights that, that, not just human duties, but rights. Two glaciers have been declared uh, rights-bearing entities. So it's not just, uh, there's a, a attempt in Florida now, and, and actually in Orange County um, in Florida, they passed a law giving rights to water. Florida responded by saying only human beings can have rights. Now there's a constitutional amendment being pursued in Florida to give all of the water in in Florida the right to flow, the right to uh, unimpeded, and this kind of thing. And I think it's incredibly detrimental because it basically is is denigrating the very concept of rights. If everything has rights, in a sense, nothing has rights because uh, rights become uh, fungible and it's also like uh, the wild currency during currency during Weimar and a wild inflation if everything has rights nothing has rights and the whole concept withers having heard these claims for the very first time they strike me as as some sort of bizarre mixture of unfathomable stupidity and reckless frivolity i mean i'm sure i haven't i haven't gauged i i, I cannot yet appreciate what's involved in saying that the water in my toilet bowl has an intrinsic right to be flushed. <laughs> I, I will, I will send you some of my articles on nature rights because the frustration I've been having is getting people to take it seriously because it is so idiotic. But the problem is we live in idiotic times and there are, you have to convince me of that. 
And, uh, and, and it, and it's not just something that could happen. It is something that is happening. Uh, just as an example, uh, Santa Monica has declared the rights of nature. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles. I know Santa Monica, like the back of my hand, there's no nature left in Santa Monica. So, so what are they doing? It's a declaration of ideology that human beings are just another animal in the forest. And the idea behind that. That's the dangerous side. Yes. That. That second part is a data. The first part about, I forgot what you called it, nature. Nature rights. Nature rights. That's just imbecilic. But the idea that human beings are just another animal is a, a pernicious doctrine. It's a degrading doctrine. And it's not true. So why isn't it true? Why isn't it true? Because human beings are in possession of a whole suite of species-specific properties that clearly distinguish them from all other animals. You don't have to go to the extent of saying that every human being contains within, as Catholic doctrine would urge, an image of God. You don't have to go to that extent and just look at the intellectual equipment of human being compared to any other species. Noam Chomsky made a very a very clever point about this. He said the distance um, between human beings and their nearest simian ancestors is the difference in the properties they possess is much greater than the difference between the great apes and the flowering plants. That's interesting. That geological time. The difference between us and our simian ancestors is still greater. There's yeah. no species that behaves, that reacts, that builds, that constructs, that lives the way human beings do. It's absolutely clear. Anyone who suggests that, well, we're one with the ants and the brontosaurus simply doesn't doesn't have the capacity to look like in the face. It's not like that. Yeah, that's human exceptionalism. And human exceptionalism is both about our value and our duties, because we're the only species that has duties. I agree with that entirely. Well, maybe some dogs who are cheap. I mean, they always talk about, uh, well, both horses and dogs. I've heard people who are avid horse women say that horses have a sense of duty. They, they want to respond properly to commands. Maybe that's true. But it's certainly not a human sense of, of duty. It's certainly not a moral issue for the horses no, if they not. do. No. See, animals, as I look at it, are amoral. I mean, I've got a beautiful dog who I love. But he's not making moral decisions when he wants to please me. He's saying, I love, he loves me and he wants to please me, or he doesn't want to displease me. I think that's absolutely right. Nobody who's been around animals ever could come to the contrary conclusion. Um, one last question for you. And this is something that I've been really fretting about. And I, I, when I got, when you agreed to be interviewed, I wanted to ask you this. I think a real problem in the West today is that people feel instead of think. For example, someone might say, I feel that Donald Trump is XYZ instead of, I think that Donald Trump is XYZ. Those aren't synonyms. Thinking is is distinctly human. Feeling is not distinctly human. And feeling is transitory. What I think, if I if what is right is what I feel today, well, tomorrow I might feel differently. And that, that kind of does away with our ability to actually rationally look at life and apply principles if everything is about how we feel. Or do you think I'm overreacting to that and, and it's just a, a speech idiom? 
No, I don't think you're overreacting. I think a great many people have noticed the intrusion into the contemporary life of declarations of feeling. Um, it's paralleled by the, the phrase you see over and over again on, on various sites. As a black woman, as a transgendered man, as a Latino, as a Swiss Chinese lesbian, I feel. Yeah. And the, and the distinction, I think, is pertinent. Uh, what one feels and what one thinks and how one judges are three di quite different things. Feelings, um, are, have, feelings, it seems to me, are not subject to debate. I mean, I feel what I feel. When my mother was very elderly and, and she had um, uh, Alzheimer's, I, I would tell her something, and, and I could tell when she, she didn't feel it was true, even though it was rationally, because she jut her jaw out because she felt something. And that was a product of her illness. But, but I think as a society, we have a lot of people who reject rational discourse and thought based on their emotional need of the moment. I think that's true. Now take the next step if you, do, if you dare. Who are those people? You tell Probably me. The most, the most broad classification of human beings where do you find the provenance of declarations of feeling to be paramount? I'll let you you tell me the answer to that. I, I'm not going to. I, I know where my, my bread is buttered. I'm not about to say it. <laughs> but we both know. This, this is the prerogative, basically, of women. It's the feminization of modern life. Women typically, traditionally, have argued on the basis of, well, I just feel that way. And there's very little anyone can do about it, but it is definitely a sex-linked characteristic. Yeah, and I, I think, and of course, obviously, that doesn't mean women can't think. Uh, no, no, yeah. no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. It does point to an important fact that we do live as biological agents in a seriously divided environment in which there are two sexes with very different agendas, very different attitudes, very different programs, very different ways of proceeding in the world. It's insanity to reject that. And that yet that is being rejected uh, left and right on in Western society. It is. That's part of secular culture. I think it's almost inevitable. Everything sacred is defiled. Everything holy is profane, as Marx said. Uh, and I think it will be a long time be before the pendulum swings back. Yeah, I, I think that it's it's going to, and it's lead, it is leading actually uh, continually to persecution and at least um, uh, social martyrdom, if not blood martyrdom, that people are losing their livelihoods, they're losing their friends, they're losing their opportunities. Well, I think the loss of friends can be supported with more equanimity than the loss of one's livelihood. Um, but I think basically you are right. There is um, an active attempt on the part of a tiny minority, ideological minority, not only to control the agenda of intellectual life, but to make an attempt to control reality itself. Yeah. And that's one of the miserable consequences of the 20th century. We no longer are as sure as we once were that reality cannot be controlled in this way. And, and that does away with humility, and uh, that, that's always a, a problem.
Not well, mine. My humility is intact. Your your humility will always be the best there is, right? Flourish. Yeah. Flourish. If you were to remedy one aspect of contemporary culture, what would it be? Real quick. Yeah, that's a tough question. I would invest far more money than is presently being invested in male pattern baldness and its cure. <laughs> much, much more money. <laughs> well, maybe they maybe or invest money in, in convincing women that male pattern baldness is sexier than Tom Cruise. That's hopeless. <laughs> Trust the voice of experience. <laughs> Well, we'll tackle that the next time. What next for uh, David Berlinski? I don't know. I've been busy writing essays. Uh, I wrote one about Eric Zamora, uh, this guy here in France, and uh, I wrote one attacking Steven Pinker. I've written one about the Yale psychologist who got in so much trouble with his students. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finish a fourth novel. Um, but, you know, you reach a certain age, the urgency of actually getting the thing done begins to diminish. And I've got lots of other things on a day-to-day basis that are commanding my attention at time. But uh, at night, when my old war wounds ache, I go back to my novel. Well, thank you very much for being on Human Eyes, and I hope to be able to talk to you again. Next week. I'm, I'm free. <laughs> Thanks, David. Take care, Wesley. Nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. That was David Berlinski with Wesley J. Smith in the second part of a conversation originally presented on Wesley J. Smith's Humanize podcast, also part of the Discovery Institute. Find more like it by visiting the podcast website, humanize.show. That's H-U-M-A-N-I-Z-E dot show. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.